These are the dogs that break our hearts. We see them everywhere. In YouTube videos, print ads, television commercials, they're the ones with the droopy eyes and the sad face, the long face. We empathize with them. We sympathize with them. We don't know. So it adds to the confusion because we're, we're at a loss as to understand why they feel the way they do, why they behave the way they do, why are they always in a continuous state of fear. So let's dispel some of the myths and let's get a little deeper understanding as to what it is that is really going on with our dogs who deal and struggle with fear on a regular basis. Welcome to Don't Throw Out the Dog, a podcast to dive into the behaviors of your dog to help you understand what they mean, how they're feeling, and what they're trying to say. It's education and knowledge for a closer connection, bringing your best friend even closer. Now your host, Armando Morales. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is episode seven. Thank you very much for being here. Listen, I just want to say, because I've got to say this at the beginning of every single podcast, that as I roll along and I make more of these episodes, I know it's not a whole bunch, it's only seven, but I'm, I'm chugging away. And um, I'm getting a lot of feedback. So it's a lot of positive feedback. I get reviews, I get rated, I get uh, the subscriptions are going higher, the downloads are, are more. And I got people sending me messages on Instagram emails. So it's good. It's positive. I like that. It boosts my kind of confidence. It makes me feel that I'm on the right track. And it makes me feel that this is landing, landing on the right ears, that there are people out there who need this information, which is one of the reasons, if not the primary reason why I really started doing this. And it's reaching them. And I like that. And that's good. That's, uh, that, that validates my efforts. So please don't hesitate. Reach out to me. I've said it before, you can reach out to me through Instagram, Facebook, email me. It's always helpful. And if you've got any tips with regards to what I can do to improve the actual podcast itself, then let me know because, as I've said many times, I'm green to this whole thing. I don't really know exactly what I'm doing, and I'm figuring it out as I go along, which is perfectly fine. It's usually the way it should be with life. Just tackle on a project and then figure it out as you move along. But uh, I know that there are a few areas that I can clean up except that it's one of those situations where I don't really know exactly where I'm failing or where I, I need to address first. So if you've got any suggestions, let me know. But anyway, let's move on to the topic at hand. Today, we are talking about fearful dogs. And these dogs are ubiquitous throughout society. We see them everywhere. It is a, a, a major part or staple of my business, dealing with fear in one way or another, uh, and somewhere along the spectrum, and, and, and in the many different forms and shapes that it takes hold in a dog. And um, if you don't have a fearful dog, uh, then count yourself lucky, because I think the vast majority of people do have some fear within their dog, and even if it doesn't start off that way, at some point it develops into a fear issue. So you can have a very highly confident puppy who at some point in, in some phase in his or her life develops some kind of fear behavior. And if you don't have one, then consider yourself lucky. But chances are you know someone who does or you've had a dog in the past who had fear issues. And fear can manifest in many different ways. And we're going to talk about that too. That's one of the, the, the concepts, one of the tips that I, I want to discuss here because we're going through eight tips. Is it eight? Yeah, eight tips on fearful dogs and these are not necessarily tips they're just advice they're just uh, ideas things that will help you better understand how to deal with your dogs and what exactly is happening with the dogs but let's kind of go into this and let's talk about what exactly is a 
fearful dog. Why are these dogs the way that they are? And let me quickly start dispelling a myth because one common myth in fearful dogs is that the dog has been abused in some way or other. And I hear this often when I go into a, a person's house, when I go into a client's house and I see the dog, I make the observation, I start asking questions. One of the first few questions that they shoot out at me is, do you think he was abused? Or we think he was abused. Maybe, as an example, the dog doesn't do well with men. It's just one example. It can be the other way around, too. So, guys, don't, don't get all offended about this. It could be the other way around, too. It's Dogs don't really like women. It's a rare thing. But it's usually men and children that the dog don't do well around. So the idea pops up into their head, and they, they, they reach the conclusion, well, the dog must have been abused by a man a male figure at some point in his or her early life. And this is usually the case with um, rescue dogs or dogs who have been in shelters, in, in, in rescue homes, foster homes at some point or other. But I'm going to tell you that it is a rare, rare thing that a dog is actually physically, intentionally abused to the point where he or she starts to develop fear behaviors because a dog does not have to have gone through any kind of intentional abuse to develop fear. Now, key in on what I'm saying here, the big phrase, the word intentional. There are many other ways that you can abuse a dog. Neglect is one of them, right? So not socializing the dog properly, not feeding the dog properly, not having or forming a right relationship with the dog. In some ways, it can be considered abuse. I mean, turn it around. If it was a child and you did all those things, then those things would be considered abusive. So there are many ways that you can consider a dog, uh, dog abuse. But the one thing that pops up into many people's minds is that it was an intentional abuse. So somebody actually physically harmed the dog. And, and that is a rare thing. Now, I don't know the numbers. There are no numbers on this. There is no way that you're definitely going to ever know if your dog was abused or not. And yes, I am sure that there are dogs out there. There are people, there are horrible people who actually abuse dogs, who kick them, who mistreat them, who yell at them who hit them in some way or other? Yes, I don't doubt that. I don't deny it. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm saying that it's very rare, that it's more than likely not the case with your fearful dog, and that your dog does not ever have to have gone through that kind of experience with any human in order to start developing some kind of fearful-like behaviors. Because a dog can do so independently of, of that kind of abuse. So how does a dog develop fear if he or she has not been abused? Well, th there's a few different ways. One is genetically. Your dog may have a predisposition towards fearful type behaviors that may have been passed on by the mother or father. Maybe the mom was skittish. Maybe the dad was skittish. Maybe both were. And they pass it on to the litter. That doesn't mean the entire litter has to get a hold of this genetic predisposition to be fearful. So it doesn't mean that every single one, every single pup in the litter is going to be fearful. Maybe it goes on to one or two of the pups. But there's a genetic predisposition towards that kind of fearfulness, that kind of lack of resiliency. We've talked about resiliency here in, in dogs in past episodes. In fact, I think I made a whole episode just on your lack of resiliency in a dog and what it really means and how they view the world when the dog is not resilient, when he doesn't bounce back well from different experiences and hard encounters or what he perceives to be hard encounters. But that's one way. Another way is the environment. 
the what we do with the dog early on in life or the life that the dog lives, his or her experiences early on in life. Again, it doesn't need to be abusive. But for example, you can have a, um, you can have a, a dog who you've had as a puppy. So this dog has had no prior life uh, other than maybe hanging out with mom for the first few weeks of life. And you get him at 9 weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks. So relatively clean slate. But you don't do enough to socialize the dog. And you don't do enough to provide some kind of routine, some kind of stability, some kind of predictability in the dog's life. That can create some fearful behaviors in dogs. If the first few weeks or days or months of the dog's life are filled with some kind of stress and tension, that can create a lot of fear in the dog that gets imprinted within them and carries on for the rest of their lives. It can. Not always, but it certainly can. As far as rescue dogs go, because I think rescue dogs get a bad rap, they're considered to be difficult to handle or they're considered to be full of baggage, right? You get a rescue dog and it's almost like the common idea is that, yeah, my dog's going to have some kind of baggage because he's a rescue. That, that isn't always the case. But when it is the case, it's kind of understandable too. If you really have to delve into what it means to be a rescue, well, first of all, a rescue, who knows what their background is? Some of these people, or rather people, not people, some of these dogs come from puppy mills. So if you know anything about puppy mills, that can be a, a harrowing experience for dogs. And even if they, they're not part of a puppy mill, uh, a young dog can be shuffled around from place to place, home to home, human to human, one environment to another. Sometimes they go into a well-meaning home that is part of a rescue group or a foster parent, and they have multiple dogs that they're caring for. But in order to kind of have some kind of life and stability... For, multiple, for living with multiple dogs, that means that that dog is going to be crated for an extended period of time. That can be challenging and full of tension and stress for the young pup. And that can start creating fearful type behaviors in the dog as well. So the dog who, who is shuffled around from place to place, home to home, again, no bad intention. They're just trying to get the dog adopted. They're moving him around. One common scenario is around here. We get a lot of dogs that come from downstate. Not, I'm sorry, not downstate, down south. And those dogs are transported. So consider that experience. The dog has absolutely no idea what's going on. So he goes on from one environment into another environment. Chances are he's dealing with many dogs around him. He's crated for an extended period of time. He may come across quite a few different humans, but he doesn't really have the opportunity to develop a relationship with any one of them. He doesn't have the opportunity to develop some kind of solid bond with the human. And that can be frightening to a dog. And that can start develop some kind of negative associations towards humans. Remember, dogs learn through association. So all of these early weeks with the dog being transported from place to place, human to human, that means a lot of unpredictability. That means a lot of instability. And remember what I said, instability, a lack of routine, unpredictability is scary. It's full of stress. It is for a dog just as it, is, as it would be for you. And that alone can imprint, through association, negative experiences and negative associations with, with certain things, with people, with certain men, with other dogs, a negative association with crates, a negative association with cars and vehicles, a negative association in different environments, maybe noisy environments, maybe around children. So... Again, the dog doesn't necessarily have to have gotten beaten by anyone or mistreated by anyone in order to 
come out of all of these experiences and, and think, crap, man, life is scary. I don't know where I'm going. I'm being shuffled around from place to place. I'm being handled quickly by this person and then that person. There are kids screaming and crying around me and jumping around, coming to my crate. There are other dogs around me whining and barking and howling. It can be a little traumatizing for a dog. So I understand when rescue dogs or when I, I get called and, be, and I'm told my dog's got some kind of issue and he's a rescue dog. Yeah, it makes sense to me. It's, it definitely does. Or a shelter dog. Yeah, it definitely makes sense to me. You go live in a shelter. You go live in a prison. See how you feel. Tell me it won't rattle your cage. And it will. So I understand where these fearful behaviors come from. So again, your dog doesn't have to have gone through some kind of really, really abusive relationship or experience. Just, just the first few days, weeks, and months of the dog's life. And sometimes it, it doesn't have to have been that kind of big routine of being shuffled around and moved around. It can be just you having the puppy and you're just not really socializing the dog. You're not getting the dog acclimated to the world around him or her. And then the dog starts to develop fearful type behaviors. It could be genetics. So just bear that in mind. Now, fear runs on a spectrum like many different behaviors in dogs. And what I mean by that is that fear can be specific or it can be general. And as is the case with most of these dogs, we usually think about them in general sense. So when we're talking about fearful dogs, we're talking about the one that's more generalized to the, the behaviors. So when we're dealing with fearful type behaviors or fearful dogs, they can be triggered by many different things. And certain dogs are triggered into that fear behavior and fear response by certain specific things. And that specific thing, again, it could be just, for example, it could be, it could be men, or it could be the dog next door. So you can have a dog that appears to be very happy and confident 99% of the time, but in the presence of that one trigger, whatever that trigger may be, I'm just bringing up examples, but whatever that trigger may be, then the dog, you start seeing a lot of fearful type behaviors. Maybe there's licking, maybe there's yawning, which by the way are signs of stress. Maybe the tail gets tucked in, maybe the body starts moving a little lower to the ground. Maybe the dog starts to visually shake. Don't we see this when we pull out the vacuum cleaner with some dogs? I do. I do board and train. I get some dogs in here and suddenly when I pull out the vacuum cleaner, some dogs don't need to hear the vacuum cleaner go on. They see it and it's almost like they've, it's not almost, they absolutely have developed some kind of association to the sight of these things and they begin to shake. And if they can move out of the space, like head out of, into a different room, then they do exactly that. But that's fear. That's fear triggered by a specific thing. Meanwhile, the rest of the time, the, ha the dog's just happy-go-lucky. But that's fear. But again, that isn't usually the kind of fear that we're talking about right here in this, in this podcast. We're talking about the dog that generalizes fear all the time. This is a dog that seems to be in a continual, perpetual state of anxiety, stress, and insecurity. This is the dog who is always looking at you with those eyes that are almost popping out, who always has, not always, but almost very frequently has a tail tucked in, is shaking visibly. The body posture just tells you, I'm not really confident. I'm not feeling cool at the moment. The ears are usually tucked back. The mouth isn't relaxed. Sometimes, it, most times, it's just shut. The dog doesn't really venture out. The dog doesn't experience life because the dog doesn't have the courage 
to experience life. So again, going back to resiliency, this is not a very resilient dog. This is a dog who has some kind of experience and it doesn't have to be a very overly traumatic experience. Maybe something falls within his or her vicinity and they freak out. They go into a panic state. Now, yes, again, it runs on a spectrum. So maybe what I'm identifying right now, what I'm describing doesn't really illustrate your dog. But with many fearful dogs, it does. They fall within that category. These dogs generalize fear, and these dogs just never seem at ease. And we humans are always trying to troubleshoot it. We're always trying to bang our heads against the wall trying to figure out what is going on. What can I do to make my dog feel better? What can I do to put him or her at ease? It's almost as if you're walking on eggshells at times. Can I vacuum now? Can I use the dishwasher? There's a storm coming. Thunder is going to happen. What should I do? Do I have a protocol? Do I have a plan? Do I have to cancel my plans because I can't leave the dog home alone when he's going to have a meltdown? If you're living with a fearful dog, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know this makes sense to you. You know what I'm referring to. So let's talk about these eight points, eight points for fearful dogs. By the way, before we get into these eight points, I have a fearful dog too. I've talked about her before in the past. In fact, in the episode on resiliency, I referred to her. That's Lulu. Lulu's my little pity mix. She's about seven years old now. She's a sweetheart. I love her. And as is the case with most of these dogs, they're just very sweet, kind, lovable, cuddly type dogs. But they cannot cope with life. They have a great deal of trouble coping with life. And that's my Lulu. Lulu is in a constant state of anxiety. I, I rarely see her relaxed. Even when she's sleeping, just the slightest little movement, slightest little sound gets her stirred up. While my other dog, Macho, can just sleep through most things, she is up at the slightest thing. She hears something downstairs, and she's up. She hears something outside the window, and she's up. So she's easily triggered. She's easily stimulated. She has a very difficult time calming herself down. She has a very difficult time relaxing. Her fear behaviors are very generalized. I could, if you want me to name triggers, yes, I can name triggers, but I'd go down a whole long list of triggers that will send her off the deep end because it's just life in general. It's not any one specific thing, really. I mean, at this point, yes, you could break it down to specifics, but there's no point to it. It's just life in general. And she gets spooked easily by just about anything. I'm going to tell you, if I'm watching TV and I've got the volume a tad too high, she spooks out. She gets freaked. And what she does is she gets off the couch and she heads upstairs to the bedroom. That's my cue that things are a little too stressful for her down here. And that's because of the volume of the TV. And no, it's not like I amplify the volume and I'm like kicking it here in my place with the volume really super high. It isn't. But she has a certain tolerance for what she feels is safe and comfortable for her. And apparently just, you know, a volume, a television at a moderate volume is it. It's her threshold. So she moves away. But that's how she is. That's how she rose. So speaking of which, let's get into these eight points. Point number one, understand that you're dealing with fear. That's a big one. Okay, and this goes back to every kind of thing that we talk about, the whole foundation of the podcast, just about every episode we discuss. It's really understanding your dog, understanding the meaning behind the language, the body language that you're seeing. This is fear. It's not evil. And the reason that I say that is because fear itself 
can manifest in many different ways. So the fear and stress in a dog can begin to take shape in some kind of physical form that if you don't understand what you're looking at, you see it as a bad thing. So most bites happen, for example, because of fearful behavior, because the dog feels threatened, because the dog is triggered in some sense. Not because the dog is vindictive, not because the dog hates you, not because the dog doesn't like your cargo pants or your fashion style. The dog is triggered by fear and stress. And chances are it's not a one-time occurrence. It's a stress and fear that has been compounding for some time. And the dog has reached a certain threshold and he feels like he has to get defensive. So aggressive displays of behavior, lunging, barking, snarling, growling, all of those can be manifestations of fear in a dog. And if we don't know what we're looking at, we can consider it something malevolent, something bad. But but it's not. Fear is not an evil thing. Fear is not vindictiveness. Uh, these behaviors come from fear. It's important that you really understand it, what it is that you're looking for. Because, it, again, as I've said in the past, if you don't know what you're looking at, if you don't understand the behavior based on the body language and you don't know where it's coming from, then you're going to start addressing it in a way that's not going to suit you or the dog. You're going to start misdiagnosing it. And you're going to start to come up with a plan, if you do at all, that's just not going to work for you because you're never really getting to the root of the problem. And that goes into point number two. Don't punish fear. I, I really shouldn't have to go deep into this one because this one is speaks for itself. You would think it's common sense. See, I almost stopped myself there. I, I was going to say it's common sense, but there really is no such thing as common sense. Don't punish fear. I see this quite a bit also. I see it outside when I go out into the park. Or when I go out on a stroll, I see highly fearful dogs that are being continuously punished. And there's a difference between pressure and punishment. And I'm not against pressure. But I am against punishing a behavior in an aversive manner without really understanding where it's coming from. Which is almost always the case. So don't punish fear. Number three is... You've got to prepare yourself for the long road here with fearful dogs. One bad idea that you can start forming in your head is that I've got to find a cure for this. I've got to find a fix for this. I've got to fix my dog. And I will tell you that if you're dealing with a fearful dog, it is highly, highly unlikely that you're going to actually fix this behavior. Because with these kind of dogs, you're usually in it for the long haul meaning that the behavior will last in one way or another for the rest of the dog's life. That doesn't mean that you can't make it better. That means that you can't, that does not mean that you can't make it more manageable. That, that does not mean that you're not going to be able to help your dog cope and therefore minimize the behaviors that the dog exhibits in a state of fear. That's not what I'm saying. You can certainly get help. You can certainly make things better. But at the core, what the dog is feeling how he is triggered, the stress or the anxiety, at some level, even if you make it better, at some level, it's almost always going to be there. I've yet to see a case of a, a fearful dog. A dog generalizes fear all the time, and it's just completely erased. The dog never feels fear or anxiety again. I've never seen it. I've seen dogs get better, and they only get better, again, because the, the human gets better. The human starts to understand how to cope with the dog. 
because the human starts to understand and take responsibility for how the dog feels and they begin to be proactive. So they manage the dog. They manage the environment. They're able to read the dog, see the signs. They're able to communicate with the dog. So they ward off any kind of negative behaviors. But they don't foolishly think, I'm going to end this once and for all, because that's just rarely, if ever, the case. I've yet to see it. Number four is that you want to create a safe, healthy, and stress-free environment for the dog. This is part of getting to understand your dog. When you understand your dog based on what the dog is telling you, right, through his body, you get a really clear sense of where the dog feels healthy or rather where the dog feels comfortable and where the dog does not feel comfortable. When the dog is in a state of stress and fear and when the dog is more relaxed and more at ease. And you as the human, you should understand that environment is everything for dogs and for us. We make a big deal out of environments. There are whole TV shows, reality shows based on environment and how we can spruce up and make our environments even nicer because it affects us emotionally, psychologically, either kind of creates tension in us or it makes us feel more comfortable, more relaxed, more at ease. And it's no different for a dog. And when you have a fearful dog, the way that you manipulate that environment and what you do with the environment based on how you want your dog to feel is going to make a big, big difference in how that dog responds and in how the dog perceives that space, that home environment. I try my best to create a very stress-free environment for both my dogs, and especially for Lulu. I'm very mindful of what her triggers are indoors. I manipulate where she goes, where she cannot go, and I understand what her safety spots are, and I work and embellish those safety spots. And by that, I mean that I give her access to them. I make it comfortable for her to be in those spots. I don't deny her those safety spots. I've gone into homes for training sessions and consultations where they're calling me with a fearful dog. And it's clear that the dog is extremely fearful. The dog is skittish. You can see all the signs in the dog that says, I'm freaking out. But the place is a mess. Television is loud. Adults raising their voice and yelling at each other, small children running around back and forth. It's not a healthy environment for a fearful dog. And then they wonder, why is my dog always so fearful, so skittish? Why, why, why is he always freaking out? So environment is everything. Give consideration to the environment that you're providing for your dog. And that just, doesn't just mean the environment that your dog lives in right now, but the environments that you're going to take him into. Dog parks, daycares, vet offices, pet stores, be considerate of how your dog responds to those environments. That goes into number five. Number five is don't force your dog into uncomfortable situations. And this is a very short one. You're going to know whether your dog is uncomfortable or not because you're communicating with your dog. You're reading your dog. You're looking for the signs. You're not second guessing. I see this a lot. Let me second guess. Let me, hmm, I wonder how my dog is going to do here. I'm just going to take him to see how, you know, how things work out. And the beauty of dogs is that if, you, if you're really tuned into your dog, you don't have to wait and see how things will work out. You can see already clearly what that dog feels or how that dog thinks about that space, that environment, the other people, the other dogs. Again, it's communication. So number five is don't force your dogs into uncomfortable situations. 
Number six is work at making them less fearful of their triggers. There's a variety of different ways that you can do this, okay? So I'm going to rephrase that to work at making them less afraid or less triggered in general. I do all sorts of things for my dog. Yes, you may think I'm a little crazy, and you may have already read up on some of these things. I put some nice soothing music when I leave. I've got YouTube on my television, and there's a YouTube channel there or a few YouTube channels that are just for dogs, dog channels. I can't tell you what the names are because I can't remember them. But you put them on, and it's classical music. Or you have scenes of dogs running or walking through open fields and yards or city streets and it's very calming and it's very relaxing and in the background you have this classical music playing now i've no freaking idea if it makes my dog feel any better i have no idea i i'm open to the possibility that it just may be making me feel better but i know that it doesn't hurt and that I know that when I'm dealing with a fearful dog, I'm going to try just about everything I possibly can to alleviate her fears, her stress, whether it's laughable or not. And I don't necessarily think that this is laughable. And as long as it isn't hurting, I'm open to the possibility that, okay, let me give this a shot and see what kind of results I get. And this is one practice that I do with her all the time. I also use aromatherapy candles, lavender. Does it work? I don't know. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel a little more relaxed and sleepy. I don't know if it works for Lulu, but I do it. Okay. In the past, we used to put aromatherapy around her ears and her neck. I think we stopped that practice. I, I don't know, again, if it led to anything. But again, it's just one more thing that we were doing. But training-wise, you can counter-condition the dog too. And you can start helping the dog develop positive associations to the world around him. If you've got one of those dogs that generalizes fear everywhere, you should be bringing food and treats with you everywhere. So you're probably thinking, well, why food and treats? Because you want to start building a, a, a positive association. Look, the reason your dog is feeling fearful about whatever it is that he's feeling fearful about in the world is because he's already formed associations. Remember what I said in the past. That's how they learn, through associations, through consequences. Those associations don't need to make any sense to you. They make sense to the dog. It's, and, and chances are that there's, these associations are not real. Unless your dog has been attacked by another dog, there are, there's hundreds if not thousands or millions of dogs that have fear reactivity towards other dogs and have never been attacked by another dog. But somehow or other, they've developed negative associations towards the presence of unfamiliar dogs. So help your dog develop new associations. Help your dog change those associations. And one great way that you can do it is through the use of food. This is pretty basic and standard. And there's a lot of videos out there on YouTube that will show you exactly just that. It's counter-conditioning. That's what it's called. And that's what you're doing in a nutshell. Taking one association and trying to mold it into a different association. So in the presence of whatever that trigger is, reward your dog for calmness and start stuffing their face with something of high value. It may work, it may not. It doesn't always work. But again, I'm not giving you tips here that are going to absolutely 100% change things around for you. I'm giving you suggestions that you should go out and try and implement. You should be open to it. Here's point number seven. 
and I've made mention of this in an earlier point, is that fear can breed a lot of negative behaviors. Fear can breed aggression in dogs. Uh, there are a few ways in which aggression forms in the dogs. The two most common ways in my experience are fear and frustration. Fear can certainly breed aggression in dogs. So you want to look out for those signs. You want to be careful that it doesn't escalate to the point where you're getting that kind of behavior from your dog. And that almost always happens because the dog is telling you that I am fearful of this thing, whatever that thing is, and somehow or other you are continually exposing them to that thing. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do so and that you can't turn around their association with those things, but you have to work at it. Just throwing the dog into the presence of that scary trigger and thinking, well, the dog's just going to figure it out on his or her own rarely ever happens. You've got to have a plan to try and turn that association and your, your dog's way of thinking around into a more positive space, more positive head space. But barring any plan, a bad strategy is to just continuously put them into that stressful head space into that fearful headspace. So, in other words, exposing them to that scary trigger again and again and again and again with no plan, with no training. That's a good way to start developing defensive-type behavior in dogs. So recognize, and you should have this topmost in your mind, that fear can definitely, without a doubt, breed aggression. Don't let anyone tell you any different. And if you've got a little fearful dog, no matter the size, tiny or big, who barks a lot, barks, 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 start paying attention to their bark. Because their bark, just like our verbal communications, can take many different forms and have many different intentions. So a bark can be, hey, look at me kind of bark, or I'm going to rip your face off kind of bark. Really, it can go from that one extreme to another. Pay attention to your dog's bark. Because that, the, the bark can be an indicator that your dog is developing aggressive-like tendencies. Another one is growling. So if your dog is so fearful that he's beginning to growl in the presence of whatever, children, other dogs, humans, and you're laughing it off or thinking, oh, he's just scared, well, you're absolutely right. He is just scared. But recognize that that right there is the, can be the formation of aggressive-like behavior. So don't be alarmed about it. And, and, I, and this is one thing that I deal with with many people is that when they call me, they usually call me at the point where the dog has already escalated that behavior where his or her aggressive behavior is very clear and obvious. There's no, there's no confusing. This dog is clearly showing aggressive-like behavior. Very often enough, what you have is a dog who started with fearful type behaviors, body language that indicated he or she was fearful, and they continued to expose the dog to certain triggers in the absence of any kind of plan. So there was no training plan of sorts, and the dog just started growing more and more defensive. So now they have a dog that, yes, is fearful, but is now demonstrating that fear or conveying that fear through aggressive behaviors. So be very mindful of that. And tip number eight is that you want to be able to build a relationship based on trust and respect. 
So the first part of this is self-explanatory. Clearly, if you've got a fearful, anxious, insecure dog, you want to make sure that that dog trusts you. You want to make sure that that dog feels comfortable and safe in your presence. That is going to be a major thing in the dog's life. The way that the dog perceives you in terms of safe or not will factor into his behaviors at any given time. And this is all entirely based upon you and your behaviors, how you engage with the dog, how you handle the dog. And as I said, this should be self-explanatory. Clearly, obviously, if you're dealing with a dog who is low in confidence, you want to make sure that he has some kind of level of confidence in you. The other part may be counterintuitive to a lot of people. When I say respect, I actually mean that you want to be able to fill a role of authority or accountability in the dog's life. In my experience, the more insecure and fearful and low in confidence a dog is, the more he kind of needs guidance and direction. Many of these dogs, what happens is that when we see them in this state, what we start going in with is our hearts. So we coddle, we give them a lot of security. In other words, we want to be their security blanket, right? We want to do everything we possibly can to minimize the dog's fearful behaviors, fearful response to the environment. And that's natural, and it's also nothing absolutely wrong with that. You should certainly go down that road and try to ease your dog at any given turn. But what happens is we start giving this and leading with the heart at the expense of rules and structure, at the expense of direction. A fearful dog more than likely is going to give in to his impulses. And those impulses are almost always based on fear and also based on defensiveness because of that fear. And when a dog makes these kind of choices, they, they don't work out in our favor because they're, because they're not good choices. So when you start seeing rise of defensiveness in a dog, whether it's indoors or outdoors, towards humans, towards other dogs, that's a dog that's making choices on his own. Now, there's a lot to consider, of course. You've got to consider your own behaviors, what you're allowing, what you are being permissive about, what the dog is being repeatedly exposed to. That's all within your control. But in many instances, a dog needs to understand the difference between good and bad and right and wrong. And that's training, and that training has to come through you. So that has to be a proactive effort, a proactive measure on your part. And that often means that you need to have that dog held accountable to you and to you, to your standards, in other words. Your standards of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And this, I say, it's counterintuitive to many people because, again, when we see a dog in this state, the last thing that we think about is, I need to give this dog some kind of firmness, some structure. We put that to the side and we, we really pay the price for it and... I think the dog also pays the price for it because in my, in my experience and in my observations, and this goes equally for humans as it does for dogs, the more we are kind of lost in the water, the more we're floundering out there in an emotional state, the more we need somebody to kind of stabilize us, the more we need somebody to be strong with us, to be firm with us, to guide us, to really give us clear instructions, to give us some kind of direction. And we don't want to be meandering about because we're directionless, because we don't know what to do, because we're doing what's easy, or we're doing what we feel is right, but we don't really see things clearly because we're in this high emotional state where we can't think clearly. And that's not much different than what's happening with a very fearful, anxious, insecure, low-confident dog. They generally don't make good choices because their choices are just impulses based on that fear, on that perceived threat.
And really it's up to you as the human, as the leader, to demonstrate to them, to show them that life doesn't necessarily need to be this scary, but also that their choices are not ones that you're going to be accepting. So the absence of firmness, of accountability, of structure, of rules, really is the absence of a strong leader and really is a weak leader who just turns a blind eye to all of that and just figures, let me just coddle the dog. Let me just do all the nice, soft, mushy stuff, which is, again, I, I say mushy, but I, I, I do all that stuff myself. There is no, absolutely nothing wrong. That is exactly how I am with Lulu. As I've said earlier, I do all of those nice, soft things for her. But I also, when she starts to spiral out of control, I also stop it. I don't allow it to persist. I see the danger. I see the danger in, re in her repeating certain negative behaviors. I see how that can reinforce it and make it stronger. I see how she can become more challenging, more difficult to control. I see how she can get over threshold and be triggered. And if I don't stop her, if I allow it, if I become permissive about it, if I don't give her some kind of level of firmness, I see how she just spirals and just goes on and on and on and on. And that behavior gets really uncontrollable. This is the last one, but it's an important point, is that you've got to build that relationship of trust. But you also have to hold that dog accountable, accountable to what your standards are. And recognize that it isn't toughness for the sake of toughness. It's tough love. It isn't firmness just for the sake of firmness. This is not some kind of me telling you you got to be the alpha. That, I, don't, I don't buy into that stuff. You've got to be a parent. You've got to be a leader. You've got to see a dog who's in need of help, and you've got to provide that help. So leaving a dog to fend for himself really is turning a blind eye to all of that stuff. And you don't want to do that. So when you come at your dog with this kind of firmness, this accountability, you got to do what I say you're going to do in this instance. It's not because you want to be mean. It's because you actually want to help the dog. You want to be able to help the dog cope. You want to prevent behavior that's going to be uncontrollable. See it that way. Don't come at it from an emotional stance like, oh, no, I can't be firm with my dog. I can't repeatedly tell her no. I, I can't stop her. Yeah, you can and you should. So that's it. That's my thoughts. Anyway, let's call this one a day and let's end it and let's move on to the next one. So listen, I have got a whole list of ideas for future podcasts that I want to be able to record, but I'm open to your suggestions, anything that you want to hear about. Chances are it's coming up anyway, but again, go hit me up on Instagram. It's my name, Armando Morales, A-R-M-A-N-D-O-M-O-R-A-L-E-S-7-7. That's the account. Shoot me a DM. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you've got any ideas or any suggestions, and I'll certainly include those in. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Go out there, help your dog, become your dog's leader. Be proactive in your plan and all the best to you. Take care. This has been Don't Throw Out the Dog. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to this podcast to be the first to hear new episodes jam-packed with actionable tips and tricks. Small changes you can make that will make an everlasting difference in the life of your dog and your relationship with it. For more exclusive content, follow Armando on Instagram at ArmandoMorales77. 